Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to address something that has been going on in the games industry more broadly, namely the fact that this year, 2023, has seen the largest wave of layoffs basically in the industry's history. And the perversity of this wave of layoffs is sort of then, I guess, set against the fact that the video games industry has never been more profitable and there's never been more money sloshing around than there currently is. So that at the same time companies are making bank, <laughs> um, people are suffering. So the people who make games are not getting their fair share of the sort of the rewards that stem from the success of the video games industry as a whole. And in response to this, I've seen a lot of people, you know, offering, I don't know, what I would consider to be not the, the greatest advice. So rather than scold those people, though, I thought I would um, proffer something to you all um, should you desire it. So I and and I should note that I'm speaking entirely for myself here. Um, this is this is not. Lauren doesn't necessarily disapprove of what I'm doing, but um, this is me, so uh, you're, you're not getting the, f the full footy-dashi experience for this. You're getting my personal experience. And the reason why this is relevant is because I actually have quite a bit of experience um, doing labor organizing. I should note, in one case, a very successful organizing campaign, um, one that was pretty mixed <laughs> in terms of its results, and one abject failure. And so I would like I like to think that I actually have um, a lot of experience both with sort of like what works and also with the sort of the dirty underhanded things companies often do in order to try and suppress uh, labor activism. So with that in mind, I wanted to let everyone know that um, the DMs on our Fudidashi account on Twitter, that's Fudidashi Pod. Um, are open. And you can contact me anytime if you are serious about doing union organizing in your workplace. Because frankly, I, I don't want to be too harsh about this, but like this notion that all you really need to do is sort of like improve yourself in this kind of like bourgeois liberal way and like just be a better like game designer, like stand out above the rest. Like that's actually not going to work. Like, they, at the end of the day, they don't care about you. They may say it, but like the system is structured in such a way as to like be relatively indifferent to the plight of working individuals. And the only sort of effective means of combating that is to organize with your fellow workers and to seize basically to take back some of the control and some of the power in a situation where it is designed to make you feel powerless. So like I said, you can contact me on Twitter at FudidashiPod in DMs or publicly if you want. I don't care either way. Um, and I can help you sort of get started. Like if you don't know what to do, like, you know, what to approach, like how to deal with certain, you know, like antagonisms that are going to arise in your workplace as a result. I have experience with this and I would like to help people improve their situation in such a way that it improves things for all of the of the like really great creative individuals who work in the games industry. And 
not to put too fine a spin on it, if you can afford to pay for it, we do have a mentorship program um, at Fudidashi. It's on our Patreon page. You can sign up for a session for these things. However, there is no I have no expectation that you do that. If you want to and to support us, that's great. But you don't even have to tell me that you that you can actually afford it. Like if you want to do it entirely for free, if you want to just like sort of bend my ear and sort of like get my thoughts on like how to approach these things, just contact me. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to give me a pity story. I will do it for whoever comes because at the end of the day, I believe in the power of labor. I believe in sort of like the the joy and the, I guess you could say, the... um the exuberance that comes from like standing beside your fellow workers and taking back control over a system that really is kind of set up to make you feel like a failure. And so with that, <laughs> so with that depressing little moment, uh, let's get on with the show. Episode 2 in Season 4 of the Furidashi Podcast. I am your co-host, Nicholas Tyson, and I am here with Lauren. Lauren Ash, you are also co-host of Equal Stature <laughs> and Status. Well, that- Stature, at least in my heart, if not physically. Yeah, I was gonna say, you're stature. shorter than me. <laughs> I am quite shorter than you. Even in, even in MMOs where I continue to continue to be a shorty. For yeah, whatever I, I, reason. I did always find that really weird. Like every time you haven't like, so we, we played Final Fantasy fourteen together and Lauren's character is so fucking short. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, and I played a really tall character, not, not as tall as I am because I am actually not that much taller. I'm sort of like middle... A middle of the road, as far as like height. No, but you definitely played like a very tall character. I played a very tall character. (laughs) What really hit me was when we are, and this does actually relate to stories, we promise, is that when we're looking at, when I was playing an MMO, like everyone who was looking for my character, I think was looking for someone taller because all of them were like, we can't find you. And I was like, I promise I'm in the inn in Britannia. And then they were like, oh, you're short. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I like the real world parallel hailer between you trying to find me in a crowd in the real world and you've never met me before in the real world because COVID, right? Pandemic. You started yeah, 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 yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And now it's, you can't find me in this popular MMO or RPG because that's how short I am in a crowd. <laughs> So today yeah. we're not going to be talking about our respective heights, both in real life and in games. Um, we're going to be continuing the conversation from last time. So I am continuing my indie game dev journey, my solo dev journey. And we kind of left on a bit of a cliffhanger in the previous episode where we started to discuss encounter design and sort of like the way in which 
Baldur's Gate 3 uh, structures its skill checks in a very sort of novel and, to my mind, very interesting way. And so in this episode, we're going to kind of expand upon that and talk about encounter design, generally speaking. And so before we get into sort of like the specifics of the game that I'm working on, I do want to note that we have a Patreon. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash foodidashi. And in the recent episodes of Foodidashi Classroom, which are now available to all Patreon subscribers, um, I actually discussed encounter design in pretty great detail. And so if you want to know a little bit more about sort of like the theoretical justifications for a lot of what we're going to be talking about, I discuss it there. You are unfortunately going to have to pay for it. So apologies for that. We'll get into a little bit of it here, but the real like hardcore, like theory in depth, you got to pay for that. Apologies, folks, but that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> so, Lauren, when I say encounter design, what what do you what do you think I mean when I say that? Yeah. So I think typically when we're looking at encounter design, I think about the way you like would go into a challenge. I always think of encounters because of my background with a level design. Yeah. I just always think about it. It's the way you enter a level, what challenge or opportunity or difficulty is presented to the player. So for example, in Tomb Raider, right? Lara entering a dungeon and we see she gets dropped down to in a cliff and has to make her way up the well. <laughs> there we go, right? Like that is an encounter design. But yeah. I think what's interesting is that also encounters then are combat, right? So yep. the encounter design of a combat space. But I was really interested where we left off last month because you were talking about Baldur's Gate 3's encounter design purely from a kind of story and dialogue Yeah, not from combat at all. In fact, it's interesting because in Baldur's Gate 3, they in many ways have kind of two encounter systems. They have the encounter system that is combat, which literally like takes you into an entire like turn-based mode that is fundamentally different from like what you were doing previously. But then they also have this other encounter system, which is primarily dialogue-based. In fact, I think it's exclusively dialogue-based in which you apply a set of you know skill checks to a kind of like narrative that plays out based upon what choices you make like what roles you make whether or not you succeed or fail etc 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 and those two things are kind of bifurcated from one another and i think that's why back when we actually discussed Baldur's Gate 3 in an earlier uh, Furidashi episode we talked about the fact that it, it felt kind of like XCOM plus a visual novel so like the XCOM part is really sort of the combat encounter design, whereas the visual novel part is this other thing that I think we really want to focus on because that's the thing that is, it doesn't feel like it has been well theorized or, or sort of like thought out in a kind of focused and consistent way. And I think that it's interesting for me, like something that's been coming up recently is looking at what people consider visual novels and interactive storytelling Yeah, as not having this type of really good open world or nonlinear encounter design, right? Yeah. And I think that what's really fascinating is that when you come from a more, I would say, typical non- narrative forward or non-narrative kind of like game space. Yeah. I say I say game space because and I say non-narrative with two two very big caveats because I just like threw some jargon out there. 
Uh, the games space, I mean, is also both like the games industry, AAA, but I also want to include AA and other just even independent titles, right? Like you're yeah. making a platformer and it's a new platformer and you have no story at all involved when you're making the mechanics because you just want to make really cool jumping puzzles, right? Yeah. And suddenly the story comes out of that. Like I'm including that, whether it's a side project. That's why I said games space, not games industry is that when you're making a game you can look at games as like just the mechanics like that's what you that's what you're invested in and then from that you go oh i've really liked jumps that are actually always a triple jump yeah oh i wonder if it's because they have a rocket attached to them you see and now you're forming character and story alongside non-narrative which is say i want to have a a jumping game about a rocket scientist who uses jets that would have a triple jump and I, I'm going into this mechanic like differentiation right now only to kind of reiterate that as a spectrum of what people say is interactive storytelling, well, it's all about the story. And so what's curious is I feel like the encounter designs that you and I play when we play kind of these visual novels and like interactive stories or like yeah. regardless, right? Even Pentiment, right? Could be considered like an interactive oh, story. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But then would people consider it like the same type of game is like, I hate saying this. I'm so sorry. But like, the same type of level of game depth as like a shooter. And I just, I kind of, that's what I talk about when I talk about encounter design is that like the word itself feels like it has so much weight, Nicholas, that I'm really excited for us to look at that. Yeah. But I feel like Baldur's Gate 3 is a weird situation where it has both combat encounters and dialogue encounters. Yeah. So I'm not trying to harp on the word encounter so much, but I am trying to figure out when you looked at, when you talk about Baldur's Gate 3 encounter design, yeah, how much of the different types of encounter designs, right, are you really emphasizing here? Well, it's I see what you're what you're driving at. But the reason why I kind of want to sort of like in many ways de-bifurcate, in other words, to take sort of like that half, like the dialogue system in Baldur's Gate 3 and kind of draw it back into the world of like encounter design where sort of like combat tends to be centered more often than not or like not combat but like a challenged based encounter design system works is precisely because of something that when i okay i'm not really going to reveal our our private conversations but something that lauren and i have talked about before something that has often been dissatisfying to me is how many games are built around what is essentially an achievement structure in other words success and failure are entirely like success is the sort of like unequivocally good thing and failure means you basically don't progress. And that's kind of, I don't know, kind of shitty, but also if you look at games and it's not just Baldur's Gate three, but if also, if you look at a game like Disco Elysium, you can fail. In other words, you can fail the skill check in sort of an objective sense. There is this number that you have to like ran roll a random amount over. And if you don't, then you fail that skill check. But the thing is, what results from the failure is still interesting and compelling gameplay. Baldur's Gate 3 has that as well, where like failure is not this thing that is like you do want to avoid it because there is still sort of like that satisfaction that you get from like all of like the flashy music and then the like the sparkle effects, all the particle effects and whatnot that you get from a success. But what a failure results in is not like the end of progression or a kind of, I guess you could say a lesser form of progression, but it is equally valid to sort of like the success path. And when it came to sort of approaching my own game, 
one of the things that I wanted to replicate was precisely that, where it's like you can fail encounters in an objective sense like like literally there is a pop-up that i i, I programmed that will come up on screen and it'll say like you have failed this is like or you're falling behind or like you know you're losing whatever and so like it's telling you that you failed but then the thing that happens narratively in the game still actually has value for your experience as a player and for gameplay generally speaking and in fact i'm just going to spoil this for people there are certain instances where like you can only discover really interesting things about a particular character that you're engaged in an encounter with through failing those skill checks and so you know maybe then that might want make you want to sort of like seek those things out upon subsequent playthroughs but the point is is that regardless of what happens in these encounters and they're mostly like i said skill check based you're still getting something that feels gripping that feels compelling or like even if it makes you kind of feel like crap it makes you feel like crap in an interesting way where it's sort of like you experience melancholy or sadness and the melancholy or sadness that you feel may be reflective of what you know the character that you you know your avatar is feeling at that time as well and so like all of those experiences are valid and actually, that's really what i really wanted to capture i really like that approach as well because like i think my kind of traditional background kind of came through there when I was like, look, when I think of encounters, I think of challenge-based encounters. And I'm glad yeah. you were able to give me the correct answer to my, or the answer that like I was looking for. It's not really correct, <laughs> but it's the one that I, it was a good, really solid answer because I was like, what is the difference between, right? Like the challenge-based encounters, right? That yeah. we do see. And what's interesting is that when you mentioned the skill checks that you're using in your game, is that correct? Yeah. When so you there, mentioned the skill checks, there are yeah. like, and we'll get into the skill checks later, but when you yeah. mentioned those skill checks, it reminded me that you were saying that some, regardless of whether or not you've successfully met the criteria of say this arbitrary mathematical skill check, yeah. you're still going to have a valid progression path yep. through the story. Yep. But it also is interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, were you also saying and you're equating that to your character's progression? is also valid through that negative skill check. Yes, yes. So one of the things about the game, generally speaking, that you have to understand is that it's framed through the memories of this main character, Ohatsu. And so the game is essentially then going back and reliving her experiences. And so from that perspective, technically speaking, already everything has already happened. And the sort of the events of the game, like the broad stroke events, are kind of the same regardless. What varies as you play through the game is sort of the subjective condition that you are in in relationship to those events, how you feel about those things. It's all that sort of like fuzzy affective stuff. So that's affective with an A. Um, that is really what's important. And so it, it emphasizes the importance of interpretation. It emphasizes the importance of like how you feel about what's going on. Is this exhilarating or is it kind of depressing? Or do you have or does it cause you to have mixed feelings? In other words, the focus is always on sort of the way in which the subjective condition of the avatar, this character Ohatsu, maps onto the subjective condition of the person playing the game. And those two things aren't always going to be like perfectly in alignment with each other, but even where they contradict, that is an interesting experience to have. And so the thing is, given that, given that sort of like that is the primary focus, it means then that failure 
can't be this invalid progression experience. It has to be valid precisely because if what the character experienced in like in their own life, as you go back through it, if it was a setback or if it was a failure or if it was something that would normally be regards from, regarded from like sort of an achievement perspective as like an end state, then it sort of like devalues that experience both for the avatar and for the player. And because the thing is like all of those experiences can still have meaning. So to try and construct a game where like quote unquote failures still have significance, have purpose, have motivation, have some sort of like psychological determination underlying them. Like that's really what I'm going for. And that is something that I don't often see in games. And I decided that like, if it's a thing that I want to see more in games, I should try to figure out a way to build it. So, (laughs) yeah. And I think before we go into like the, how you built it or like maybe like the what, you built i am curious let's ground what you just said with potentially an example in Baldur's gate 3 because you mentioned really loving how Baldur's gate 3 set up there yeah this kind of encounter design where both failure and success count towards progressing the story in a meaningful way yeah i'm curious what was one of the ones that really made you go aha this is the i have to build this or rather oh i hate this i have to right make it better so um, the example that I'm going to use is kind of like, it, it's got a lot of components, but I kind of think of it as kind of an Ur encounter. And that has to do with like the way in which if you want Minthara in your party, like all of the things that you have to do in order to make that a reality, like you have to lose out on a lot in order to get her in in your party. And so it can feel like a real loss. It can feel like a failure because you basically have to give up on having at least three possible companions. One who you actually have to kill in the encounter itself. (laughs) One who you lose lose out on because they're just so disgusted with what you've done. And a third who will actually ambush and attack you later in the game after Minthar is in your party. So you you lose three. And, like, the game goes out of its way to sort of, like, signal to you. It, it punishes you for doing this. Um, and yet, at the same time, like, to me, Minthara is the most interesting companion. And the reason why she's so interesting is precisely because she actually gives perspective both on like the events that are happening, which, you know, other companions do as well, but she also gives perspective on like what the other companions are going through and then also what you are going through and what she is going through. She is actually the the one character who I think has the most developed psychology. And so then the thing is like when I say that, so you, you lose out on all these opportunities to sort of like have will in your party to have, uh, <clears throat> Carlac in your party, and also to have um, Halson in your party. But what you gain is something that is equally valid, is this other path through sort of not necessarily the events of the game, but sort of like your perspective on the events of the game as sort of filtered through like your, the relationship between your character and the companion. A more like sort of localized example of this would be, oh God. Yeah, I was going to say I'd love a it's localized the, the, example. The localized example the localized example that immediately came to mind was is a major spoiler. So, 
I'll <laughs> give a localized example okay. then, because I think, and then you can actually say yay or nay to my example, because sure. I think that one of the ways that I think would have been, um, this is like something where it showed me the breadth of edge case scenario planning yeah. that this team did. And so when I ever think about progression and I think about failure and success counting towards that same story, when I look at it from a structure perspective as like a narrative designer, I'm looking at it in terms of funneling and branching, right? Like how many yeah. branches am I willing to support all of the edge cases for? But at the end of the day, right, I have limited time, money, and resources to contribute to this. So exactly, I've got yeah. to have a funnel, yeah. right? And so I think in the larger example, you talked about how Wolbenthrar as a companion actually immediately reduced, right, three of your companion branches. But yeah. it opened up right a lot of perspective so they were willing to support major right changes to their kind of like companion and character stories based yeah. on getting menthara a localized example for me is a bit of a minor spoiler at the end of end ish of <laughs> act one before you cross over from like the underdark and go into the um Act oh, two, which is the yeah. is the cursed Shadowlands, right? Yeah. Um, it's very it's very minor because it is very major for anybody who loves this types of narrative design. So I'm telling you it's a spoiler because if you want to experience for this for yourself, um, I will spoil a bit of it. But hopefully this makes you actually want to go play it to see all seven or so edge cases play out. Which is how do you if you have gotten to the Underdark, you need like a Moon Lantern or whatever, or you need something you yeah. haven't sided with Minthara. We've already got two conditional checks there. Yeah. Um, and you also have decided to approach the kind of Grimforge area yeah. and encounter someone trapped, uh, a true soul trapped behind like a wall that with tons of poison in it and a lot of gnomes in there. Yeah. How do you decide to approach that encounter? And there are several different ways. You can align yourself with the true soul in two or three different ways. You can stealth kill your way through it and just murder everyone. You can apparently, one of the ways I didn't find out in my original playthrough was apparently there are people who want to ally with you to yeah. overthrow the Grimforge people. Did not know. You can also just kind of ignore this area entirely by yeah, just, just not yeah, going yeah. to there, right? Yeah. So I think what's interesting here is that Neither of the none of these sound like a failure, right? But as a player, and so versus as a um, character, as an avatar, as Nicholas is saying, as a player, failure to me was when I decided to make kind of friends and trade with the Grimdark people, the Grimforge people. I went up to the True Soul, and I was like, "Hey, like, don't worry, I'll set you guys free." And I also want to make sure the gnomes are set free. But I set off like the bomb incorrectly. Everybody aggroed. All of the gnomes died. There was always a forced fight. And yeah. the guy now like ended up killing my entire party. Like there was no way for me to win. And quite frankly, I say there was no way for me to win because I played that encounter seven times and tried it seven different ways. Yeah. I eventually chose the option, right? So that was a failure. I was set back. I had to keep reloading because it was game over. Yeah. But what's interesting is that even through that failure, I could have chosen, okay, I failed to save the gnomes, but I gain the ability, right, to access the extra area. I yep. still would have progressed the story, but I think what's interesting is that I would have progressed it in a different way. And that yeah. requires a certain type of story structure to engage that progression. Yeah, and that's right? actually a really good example of sort of an instance where sort of like, 
the broad stroke events were kind of going to happen regardless of what you did. In other words, like there's going to be this conflict between the Duergar and the Deep Gnomes regardless of what you choose to do. So then the question is like, through the choices that you make and the actions that you take, how are you going to situate yourself and your player character in relationship to that conflict that is going to come to a head regardless? And so that's what I mean by sort of like, it's about sort of like the subjective condition of the avatar, the subjective condition of the player and their relationship to those events that aren't necessarily like, they're not predetermined, but they're kind of, you don't actually have as much influence over them as you think you do. The game sort of like presents it to you as if you do have influence over them, but you really don't. Well, I actually, I want to challenge that because like, I want to talk about that subjective conditioning that you mentioned, right? And I think what's interesting is because I had, I may not have had control over the plot, but I had control over what I was able to do that I feel like I actually did have control over what happened in the end. I don't think we're saying different things because in many ways, the distinction between like not having control over the plot and having control over sort of like your situation and like how you respond to events, like that actually feels more immersive precisely because you're occupying like a very specific like subject position. Like you understand what the stakes are. You understand like in taking sides, so to speak, you understand like how you will have to then relate to these various factions going forward. If you have to at all, like all of that feels more immersive precisely because the focus is on that subjective condition rather than on sort of like grand mall. I am changing the course of the universe. In other words, precisely because it's smaller, precisely because it's more focused, it actually feels better. It feels more engaging than if you're like, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I don't, don't apologize. Cause I was the only reason why I choked a little there is like, when you talked about you're like changing the course of history is I feel like that was what was the dip for me between like Mass Effect 3 and their ending, and then Mass Effect Andromeda, right? Like, there was this very big valley, right, where, like, you're changing the course of history. But, like, everything that I did in Mass Effect 3's ending didn't really change, right, what Andromeda was going to be. And I do think that, right, that's almost like an area where you say the players will have a choice, right? Yeah. And the active choice to get your ending cutscene feels a lot less immersive when you know that you are just active choicing to get a cutscene. Exactly, yeah. Versus when it feels like that accumulation. Because I think something that is really missing from the Baldur's Gate 3 examples in both instances, for both my example, uh, as well as your own, is that I got a lot of the same scenes, regardless of my localized example, of the choices I made in dialogue or in the choices I made in combat. And this only breaks down in that when you do choose to kill everybody, save the gnomes, and then eventually like right blow up the guy and then kill him as well, you will always get the scene. Even if you didn't ally with the people that wanted to take them down, you will always get a dialogue that says, hey, thanks for holding up your end of the bargain. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't. Uh, what? <laughs> I don't know Excuse who you, I literally went, I don't know who you are. I, you're paying me money now? Yeah. I'm not going to not accept your money. Yeah. 
but immersion breaks down, right? Whenever exactly, you have yeah. a forced moment like that. Yeah. But in a good way, right, is that I did get a different scene, right? I did get a different encounter. I did get, and I chose that path. For you, choosing Menthara in this grand scheme was you got the scenes where you had to fight and lose these characters, yeah. right? But you also then gained new stories and new progression paths because now you had Menthara. Yeah. Right? Well, so- and I think the reason why, and I think you're correct, but I think the reason why that is in the case of Baldur's Gate 3 specifically is because it's not actually committing to the bit. In other words, it's kind of half going in that direction, but it doesn't quite, like, it doesn't entirely abandon sort of like the the Bioware, like Dragon Age slash Mass Effect logic of using in, like dialogue encounters as sort of like your primary vehicle for like branching paths. In other words, it's still using that kind of like core visual novel logic where it's like, oh, what we need to do is we need to have a bunch of different kinds of endings and a bunch of different paths to those endings and, you know, maybe expand or prune them along the way. Like that's still there in Baldur's Gate 3. It's just, it also happened to have like, it also kind of, but not fully pointed to this thing that I'm talking about, which is precisely why I, I, in making my own design decisions, one of the things that I realized is that both in terms of sort of like the scope of what I could do on my own, but also because if the focus is entirely going to be on sort of that subjective relationship, then actually that works at cross purposes with that sort of ordinary sort of like branching dialogue, branching storytelling logic. Those two things are actually in opposition to, or not in opposition, they're in tension with one another. And so like the more you have that branching, the more you have sort of like control, the more you hand the player control over the events of a game and like what can transpire, the heart, the more difficult it becomes to create those alternative like subject positions on those series of events. Because then not only do you have the sort of like, like let's say you have, I don't know, five major like narrative through lines in your game and and five endings that sort of correspond to all of them. If you then also want to have what I'm talking about, sort of like these multiple subject positions in relationship to each of those, you can see how this sort of like exponentially spirals out of control and the scope of your game balloons massively as a result. Right. And so I think what you're saying is your hypothesis and your theory here is that the more control you give players, it's almost like the less control you have over those subject positions of that story. Yeah, if it's focused on sort of like the event structure. If it's focused on that event structure. Yeah. And when you're saying you're making your own design decisions, I was like, yeah, for that next about half hour here, right? For the next (laughs) half of this podcast, we need to transition more back into, right, that the game design decisions that you're making. So would you say your first game design decision was that you wanted to give players more or less control over that subject position? Because I feel like you only have one subject position truly in your experience yeah but okay so so here's the thing is that it's not necessarily a question of more or less control it's actually a game in which control is irrelevant and in fact so you just removed control like that was your not, first decision not, in, not entirely. I, I know it wasn't i'm just kind of like there, egging you on here. it's it's more like the game has an imp, an implicit critique of control 
So, okay, I'm going to explain one of the the mechanics and how it works and sort of like how this thing, I think this relates. So in addition, so the, the, the basic like skill system that the game uses is that you have three skills. You have focus, you have empathy, and you have restraint. And one of those will be like your, your strongest skill, one will be middling, and one will be your weakest. And there's a, a character creation sort of like scenario that sort of determines which is which. But alongside of that, there is this overarching system that I've, for the time being, called Defiance. And so the thing is, based upon particular choices that you make as sort of like, you know, the plot either branches or closes or like your, I guess you just say your your perspective on it branches and closes, certain choices that you make will either increase your defiance, they might do nothing to your defiance score, or they might actually decrease it. And so the thing is, is that defiance is useful in the game if you build it up. So if you have defiance built up, you can use it in certain instances to completely obviate encounters. In other words, you can spend defiance and you can immediately, quote unquote, succeed the encounter. The problem with letting defiance build up, though, is that if after a certain point, you start to have to make defiance checks. Sorry, I had to put the cat down. <laughs> you start having to make defiance checks, and if you fail one of those defiance, defiance checks, game over. Or rather, you, you get the ending, because the game actually only has one ending. And you get the ending, and you experience it, and you're like, wait, what just happened? It's, it's because you, you let your defiance build up. Because the, the sort of the, the, the narrative, I guess you could say rapper, and I know we hate this term, but the kind of the narrative frame for the game is that the reason why you're re-experiencing these memories is that you're, you have like a kind of psychic link with these two other characters who are like the main character who are trying to sort of like record your life before you die. And if, if they get fed up with you, if you're too defiant, if you sort of like engage in too many, you make too many choices that sort of like resist your willingness to sort of like divulge things about yourself as avatar and as player, then they will take drastic action. And so there's both an advantage to letting defiance build up. It's useful in certain contexts, but you also kind of have to keep it under control. In other words, there is actually incentive in the game both to sort of like exert dominance over what is happening. And also there is a uh, pressure to sort of like dial it back. And so that's what I mean by there's a kind of implicit critique of control in the game, because generally speaking, if you're playing, before, before, sorry, before we go into your critique, I actually wanted to kind of like pick apart what you mentioned there with like yeah, sure. defiance going into that ending mechanic. And I'm curious, like, how did you determine that your game's like story wanted or almost like needed this defiance mechanic? Because I know that that was kind of probably central to your, right, the nature of control and that critique of control. But yeah. because defiance as a mechanic, when it stacks up over time and systemically is actually being used to take away that control the player has. I yeah. think it's really interesting. Like did this, did the story necessitate that or did the kind of mechanic, you know, build up over time? Like how it kind of, it kind of built up over time because sort of like, so here was the, here was the path. It began as like when I actually sat down to like plot things out, one of the things that I wanted to do is sort of like first present the player with the fundamental choice, which is to play the game at all. 
And the reason why I wanted to, that to be an actual choice that you have to make is that instead of just it being like taken for granted, that's like, yes, I'm going to go on this entire journey, but also like making explicit to the player, like what it means to go on that journey. So like, you know, there's there one of the, so the, of the two visitors, one of them asks you, you know, like, are you ready? Are you prepared to remember? That's the first thing that the game presents you with. That's the first choice. And you have three options there. You can say no, you can say eh, maybe, and you or you could say yes. Maybe leads you into a more complicated encounter with this person who is sort of speaking in your mind. No takes you to the ending directly from the very beginning of the game. And I realize this is a bit of a gimmick, but the reason why I wanted to present this to the player sort of initially is to kind of remind them of what kind of game that they're going to be playing a kind of game where like you have to conscientiously push forward via your choices. The choices you make, if you want to keep progressing through the game, have to be directed towards progressing through the game. In other words, if you react to what something says, somebody says like in a snarky way, or if you refuse to answer, or if you do something that is generally um, defiant, so to speak, then there has to be some sort of consequence for that, in my mind. And so, like, there's the there's the or consequence of the game over, or like the or like being shunted immediately to the ending. But then I was like, okay, but how is this then going to be like manifested to the player throughout? In other words, if they are progressing, if they are continuing through the story, like, how do I like remind them that this is something that is in play? And that's where the defiance mechanic emerged. So this idea that like you make certain choices, the game reminds you that this stat, this sort of like underlying stat is increasing or decreasing. So that way, the relationship that, that you have with the game and like why you are making these choices is apparent to you, the player. And also, I guess, player to the, you know, apparent to the avatar as well. Yeah. And I think what's interesting here is that you're kind of kind of getting into what I really wanted to dig into, which was like how you determined your story structure or like the story of your game. And something that uh, we, you know, mentioned here uh, on Furudashi for this year is that season four is all about how making a game is hard. Uh, but it's about right us yeah. making a game and kind of practically testing out some of the things that we've been talking about for the past three seasons. Yeah. And so What's really interesting is that it's like that defiance mechanic building up over time and the relationship that you have with that game, all starting with, are you ready to remember? I'm curious if that, how, I'm curious about that statement because like how actually important is memory in the game? If, you know. You Sorry, can, go ahead and finish your thought. No, that's really it. How important is memory in the game? It's, because it's, I, I actually don't know the end of my thought. I just, I just thought <laughs> it, you know? I just uh, thought it's the thoughts out there now. We have the to, thoughts we out there now. We gotta, we gotta think about it. It's, it's, it's really fundamental. Like the, the, the way in which the many, in fact, the many ways in which many memory works is fundamental to like the plotting of the game and also the encounter structure. So to go back to encounter design, um, one of the sort of in, trying to make memory salient and also making like understanding of events salient as well. 
in order to make encounters, even though they're using a skill check system, kind of feel at times like a combat encounter, sometimes not, sometimes yes, you actually, so like I thought to myself like, well, what is a mechanic that would then reflect the player's ability to interpret and understand events that, that are going on? And I was like, well, they have to remember what just happened or they have to remember in some cases what happened like much, much earlier in the story and use that as a guide to make decisions about what to do, say, like in this particular moment, in this particular encounter. So memory is both important for sort of like the broad themes of the game, but it's also important for the player and how they have to relate to the game. So the thing is, like, you, I mean, I, I have implemented the, sort of the, the basic mechanic that you see in a lot of visual novels, which is like you can go back through, you know, the dialogue history that you've played through and reread it. But even that is in many ways kind of like it's like copying to a kind of recorded memory. And you still have to sort of like that idea of like memory as this structure of like thinking back and reflecting back like that works itself out in multiple ways. Also, visually, the way the game works is much more suggestive rather than sort of like detailed in the way it presents characters and the way it presents objects, much like the way they work in a person's memory. Like the thing is. Hold on. Can we stop right there so I can ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. So we talk about how I think for a lot of people who haven't played Acts 1 of Nicholas's game, which should absolutely play it. Yeah. I think the suggestive memory here is going to come become very apparent to you. Yeah. But what's really interesting is that most games do translate memory as a concept as recorded memory and reflecting back via, say, Baldur's Gate 3's journal, yeah. right? Or a recorded history memory. And so I actually wanted to talk about the differences, right, between detailed history and historical events as yeah. well as the suggestive memory and history in your game. And so if you could just break those apart down the way you think about them, and then you can continue your thought, I think really emphasizing that distinction right there is going to be incredibly crucial for understanding, right, your point about the suggestiveness. Yeah, but the thing is, like, records are themselves inherently incomplete. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand, is that, like... Well, not that not that they don't understand, but that in many games, they're not put in a position where they have to understand it. Because oftentimes when you think about character dialogue in a game, it's often kind of overly explicit. In other words, you go to an NPC, they tell you exactly where you have to go and exactly what you have to do once you get there. Such that if there is a journaling system or if there is a history or like some record of like previous conversations that you've had in the game and you go back and look at it, it will tell you explicitly what to do. What's different in this case, in my case, is that you can go back and you can read that previous conversation with say, your governess and like what she tells you about this school that you're about to go to. But it's not explicit what you're supposed to get from it because at all times you're expected to interpret what is going on. So like, even if you have the record, even if you have the written thing that happened and you go back and you reread every single word, it's still not necessarily going to tell you what you have to do. You still have to figure it out in that way that like if you go back through your own memories like think about it this way 
when you experience an event, you often feel one way about it at the time. But when you sort of remember what happens and you reflect upon what happens, you often feel a very different way about what happened at that time. That is entirely a function of your understanding and your interpretation of events based upon the perspective that you have at the time. And so that mechanically works itself out in the game in much a similar way in that like the game will always suggest to you what to do through like the events that take place or through like certain emotional reactions that characters have, but it's not going to tell you what to do. It's not going to tell you where to go. It's not going to tell you how to respond. It's not going to say like you have to go to X location, pick up Y data slate. (laughs) You know, it's not going to do that in the way that honestly most games do. Right. And I think what's interesting there is you're actually also then highlighting the fact that And I wonder if that's just actually a part of kind of the medium of game design and the medium you've chosen for your game is that you're kind of hinting at something where the way the player is going to interact with your game is not like through an objective system where it's like go here or go there to get right this type of version of the story that you want. Yep. Right. And when you mentioned like being able to you'll get the ending and then you need to replay it, I'm curious, is it still very apparent like how players can chase to get further and further in the story? Or do you feel like you're going to lose some of that? I or maybe you don't know. Maybe that's like the next. I I honestly don't know, because because the thing is, one, the the demo is not enough of the game to give me at least a firm sense on like how people perceive that. Because I think it's it's kind of it's it's much easier to sort of like remember and reflect back and sort of like carry with you your understanding of like how to progress in sort of that that narrower time in that narrower time span. But once you know you have all six acts and you're in the fourth act and you're like well into it, to then sort of go back and try to like recall something that happened in that demo time frame that is now salient to what you're doing now, like that's a lot harder because of sort of like the distance between those two things. And because things carry through throughout the entire storyline, like that becomes harder the further you progress. So like, I guess my immediate answer would be like, I presume that it's going to become more difficult to understand how to sort of like keep the progression going the further in you are. And if that's the case, I may want to sort of like either do a, like essentially give the player a bit more of a bone. So that way. Yeah. I think that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Cause you've only done act one right now. And it sounds like there's a lot of like really great grounding for right. This concept of memory and the way you're structuring your right encounters to kind of encapsulate that you can't always, it's not so much get what you want, but that there's going to be this balance between defiance in your mechanics and so you always will have a seminal amount of control and what's interesting is it actually sounds like while your game is a critique on control because i know that i kind of have asked you these questions and we're starting to get up to time here and i do want you to talk about your argument for control and its absence of it (laughs) is that it actually feels like control and defiance is this kind of interesting interplay that your encounter design is all about having the player try to maintain their control, not only of themselves, but also of their experiences, 
so that they can basically tell the memory as they see it to get the longest point of your story. Yeah. So I will say that as as a kind of like preemptory cliffhanger, maybe next time what we should focus on is sort of like the broader like themes and how themes like work themselves out in in the game, precisely because like this question of control is a central one. And the point that I was going to make earlier about sort of like the way the defiance mechanic works, how you kind of have to like maintain this tension between sort of like the usefulness of defiance, but then also its drawbacks. The reason why that is the case and the reason why I made that decision is because like if you think about a classic game like I don't know, just like a random hack and slash. Like I'm playing, um, a while ago I was replaying Onimusha for reasons I don't want to explain. And that game is very hack and slashy. And the whole idea is like you just, you keep killing zombies. You keep killing undead of various kinds and you keep doing it and you keep doing it basically until the game ends. And the thing is, it's like then you're your fluency in playing the game and your control over the events that happen almost kind of ends up feeling sort of routine and habitual. In other words, perversely, like being a better player of the game, having more control over what happens in terms of the game's progression is actually more stultifying. It has a kind of like dulling effect. And like the more you become capable in the game, the less the game really sort of offers you in terms of that like friction that you need in order for a game to feel like it's, it's, it's affecting you emotionally. So the reason why I have this, this mechanic where like the more you build it, like it's useful, but the more you build it up, the more it's a problem is to sort of maintain that sense of friction precisely because like if you became a God, that would be really fucking boring. And I mean that. And and the thing is, like, th- this is not a new critique. All you have to do is you go read Watch. Sorry, you go read Watchmen, and like that's the point that Alan Moore is trying to make with Doctor Manhattan. The more you become like a god, the more interacting with the reality around you becomes boring, becomes uninteresting. The more detached from it you become. And so, if you want your player to be attached to what they're doing, in many ways, you kind of have to like put the reins on like the degree of control they have over the events of the game. I feel like any black and white fan will tell you that being a god <laughs> is absolutely fantastic. Um, well, then that's the so, counter argument. <laughs> <laughs> what I will, what I will say is, uh, is a huge, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Alan Moore fan. Uh, what I will say is what's interesting here is I think this is going to be a really great preview for next time on Furidashi, where we kind of talk about game themes and potentially also how to choose good game themes, yeah. depending on which game, right, mechanics and right, systems that you want to design, but also, right, which stories that you want to tell. And I think, yeah. Nicholas, you're trying to tell a game that is centered around, right, the player's fight for control, but also the player's need to be defiant. And I think that's where you're getting some really cool encounter designs in Act 1, which, once again, you guys can all go play at itch.io slash Furudashi. Well, if you go to our Furudashi page, our page, it is there, but also the game okay. is called Le Conqueur de Filles. And Which so, will have a better marketed name at some point. <laughs> at some point, I'm probably going to have to change the name because I can't keep yeah. using the French name. I can't it. spell La Concorde to save my life because <laughs> so it's, I'm it's, Spanish it's and there are way too many letters I will in spell, that. I will spell it for you. So okay. it's L-E-C-O-N-C-O-U-R-S 
F, sorry, D E S F L F I L L E S. So le conqueur des filles. There you go. Go play. Yay! All right, and I hate to cut us off there at this point. We are coming around the hour mark. Nicholas, you are smiling super widely because I am also right super invested in in the progress of your game, but also because like we have once again somehow hit the mark that we needed to without ever even trying. Um, this is a new structure format for us, so we've always been like, oh, new change, what, how? Uh, and <laughs> I guess it's worked. Hooray. So uh, with that, please go play our game. Uh, our game, I'm sorry. Please go play the Furidashi Studios a debut from Nicholas himself. Uh, please subscribe to our Patreon. Um, if you want to hear more about right all of the decisions that Nicholas is making here, not just in theoretical, but with applicable right kind of practical examples, you can read our Substack. We can also have Furidashi Classroom, which is our uh, subscription tier on there. As yep. well as uh, potentially, right, if you want to kind of just get some one-on-one -on -one time with us, you also have access to that as well. So we look forward to seeing you outside of the airspace and inside the meat space very soon. <laughs> uh, follow us on Twitter. And until next time for Adashiites, uh, we will see you later.